This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. On the Herd podcast, our goal is educating, empowering, and engaging our listeners, including doctors, in the best ways that we can. We love what Doc2Doc is doing within our community and encourage you to visit their website at www.doctodoclending.com. That's www.doc, the number two, doclending.com forward slash FPD to learn more today. A 34-year-old woman has to leave work early to go home. She has a splitting migraine and knows that she's going to have to lie down at home with the lights off, just waiting for this to pass. And it's already been hours and she doesn't know what to do. Now normally, she would have just taken her regular pain medication, but she just found out that she's a few weeks pregnant. And she wonders, what is safe to take? Are the migraines going to get worse in my pregnancy? What can I do to prevent or treat the migraines? Because now I have to think about not only me, but also my baby. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to another episode of the Herb Podcast. So we're now in our fourth season, which is really exciting, but also goes to show just how many topics in women's pain and women's health there are to cover. Now, we've been having more and more guests on our show, which has been great because, you know, we and you, our listeners, get to hear first-hand knowledge from our experts. Today is no exception, and I'm honored to introduce Dr. Mia Minin, neurologist and headache medicine specialist. Dr. Minin received her MD from Jefferson Medical College and her MPH from Columbia University. She then went on to complete her residency in neurology at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, followed by neuropsychiatry and behavioral neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital, and fellowship in headache medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard. She currently is in practice at NYU Langone Hospital, and she also participates in research and serves on the editorial board of the journal, Headache. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Minin. Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Minin. It's great to be here today. Okay, so today's episode is gonna focus on migraines and pregnancy. So, you know, the rate of migraines in women is three times higher than that in men from what we've seen. So what I want to talk about first is the life cycle of a woman, you know, and obviously there can be variability between individuals, but generally speaking, do migraines change during a woman's life cycle, like puberty, menstruation, pregnancy, postpartum, and menopause? Yes, that's a great question. And the answer is generally speaking, they can change. So we know that hormones are really implicated in migraine and that's both estrogen and cortisol. So a lot of people know about cortisol, um, the stress hormone. So stressful periods, they may um, increase, get an increase in headaches. Um, and then when they um, get through a, a stressful time, so they're handed in an assignment at school or 
uh, a project on a Friday and then Saturday to get a headache. They're like, why am I getting it now? Well, that's the drop in cortisol. That's the letdown headache. So similarly, in women, changes in estrogen can also affect headaches. And so that's why women oftentimes start to get migraines as a teenager around the onset of menses. That's why oftentimes there can be menstrually related migraines or menstrual migraines that precede the uh, the period or are at the very beginning of your period. And that's also why the attacks can also change in pregnancy, even the different trimesters in pregnancy because of the fluctuating fluctuating levels of estrogen. And then in some women, it can actually change also with menopause because of the changes in hormone levels. So for sure, uh, estrogen and cortisol can be implicated in migraine. Hmm. And so with women in pregnancy specifically, what tends to happen with migraines? They, I read that they get better. Is that kind of true for most or all women? So that's a really good question. So first I want to say that, um, it's different for all women. Every woman's experience is different. And furthermore, every pregnancy can be different. So for example, I had a patient this week who said that she put off, she delayed having her second, trying to have a second child because her attacks were so bad in the first pregnancy. And it's interesting, but every pregnancy can be different. So I said to her, well, we actually don't really have a way to predict in a future pregnancy if things will be worse or better. So there's both inter-individual variability and intra-individual variability. So that's first. Um, Second, it is true that a lot of women do experience improvements in pregnancy. And some patients with migraine who have really severe migraines actually say sometimes that was their best time when they were pregnant that they had so few headaches. Um, And that's because of the changes in estrogen. However, unfortunately, there are definitely situations where patients with migraine do get worsening. um, And then it's important to determine, are these worsening migraines? Are these a new type of headache that we need to explore? Got it. So if you see someone, speaking of the worsening migraines, if you see someone with worsening migraines, are you concerned? Or is this sort of, you know, possibly expected? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think we have to take a very careful history from the patient, um, meaning we need to see, are there any changes in the headache pattern? I understand there's worsening. Are there changes in the quality of the pain, the location of the pain? Are they more at nighttime or different times of the day? Or is there a change in position? Are there any um, you know, challenges on um, in, in function in uh, the neurologic exam. So is there any weakness or speech disturbance, any new visual symptoms, any other new symptoms that we need to be concerned about? Um, and so with that, we take it into account to see if there are any what we call red flags, meaning, you know, could this be something other than migraine? And if so, then we need to do further testing. Well, what kind of red flags would you would you say like for a woman to report to her doctor or or the ER uh, immediately? Yeah, so really good question. So first of all, if somebody developed what we call a thunderclap headache, so boom, the snap of the fingers, they develop a most severe headache, say 10 out of 10 in severity, that is a reason to get emergency treatment immediately to call 911, go to the emergency room, because that could be an ominous sign that something bad is going on within the brain other than the migraine. Um, so certainly if it's that thunderclap headache, severe and onset 10 out of 10, that's the number one thing. 
Um, if there's any kind of neurologic symptoms, so any weakness, speech disturbance, visual symptom though, that you hadn't had before, that of course is also concerning and reason to get to the emergency room and to you know call the doctor depending on the severity of the symptoms. Um, if there's a change in the pattern, so say the attacks um, were you know sporadic here and there, different times a day, and now you're waking up with morning headaches all the time. Uh, that's a reason. If if the attacks are awakening you in the morning, and that's a new pattern. If the attacks are side locked, meaning they're always in this one location and the location is never changing, that's another reason to be concerned. So patients come all the time and they'll say, oh, Dr. Minnan, I get the pain over here and then I get the pain there and here and there. And it's actually reassuring to me when I hear that the pain is locations. And, um, and, and that's a good sign because it means that I don't need to be as worried that there's, you know, potentially an aneurysm or something else underlying there that's causing that local pain. So, um, so again, if the pain was limited to one location and it was fixed in that location, that would be a cause for concern as well. Um, but really any kind of worsening should mean that you would be seeing the doctor um, to get further evaluation. Um, just because, you know, there can be new kinds of headaches that can be pretty severe and concerning in pregnancy. And so that leads me to the other, another point, which is in somebody who doesn't have headaches and becomes pregnant, they may be like, huh, this is a new symptom. I'm having headaches. But in somebody who already has headaches, they may not be as aware that there could be something concerning. So you know, you have to be a little bit more vigilant, I would say, if you have a history of headaches already to figure out if there's something different. And if so, to seek medical, you know, medical evaluation. That was great. That was, a, that was an extremely comprehensive answer. I love it. Uh, now, a question that we often get asked with pregnancy specifically is, you know, how to prevent a pregnancy related migraine. Because generally speaking, the biggest concern is, well, I'm pregnant, so I can't take medications like I normally would, or I can't do, I'm not sure if I can do the things I normally would to prevent it. So specifically in pregnant women, what would you, what are some ways that they could prevent having a migraine? Yeah, that's a great question. And for this, I oftentimes will try to have established patients do like a preconception um, counseling appointment to discuss the different treatments. So in terms of, you asked about prevention, so I'll talk about prevention and I'll also talk about what do you do to, to take, you know, what do you take or do when you have an attack? So let me actually start with that, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Okay, so if um, if you get an attack, right, um, oftentimes patients will say, well, acetaminophen doesn't work, right, for a migraine. Um, so unfortunately, that's one of our best treatments in terms of safety for um, migraine and pregnancy. So we want to make sure the dosing is correct. So you can actually take up to 1000 milligrams. That's one gram of acetaminophen, um, you know, every six hours. So, so first we need to make sure about dosing. Secondly, I oftentimes will give patients a medicine called lidocaine, like lidocaine nasal spray. It's the same family of medicine as Novocaine. So if you go to the dentist and you have a procedure done to numb your mouth, this is the same kind of thing. And it's a nasal spray that you can put up your nose. We give you instructions on how to do it to try to um, stop the migraine process in a sense. It's not a cure, right? But it could help, say, a 7 out of 10 intensity headache go down to a 4 out of 10, in which case then maybe the acetaminophen would kick in when the acetaminophen might not otherwise kick in. So I would say those are mainstay treatments. That's like a first-line thing. 
We also may give um, metoclopramide, which is the other brand name for that is Reglan. And in the oral form, that's an anti-nausea medicine. In the IV form, the intravenous form, it can also be used to abort the, uh, the attack. So um, that's another medicine that can be considered a bit safer in pregnancy. We also may use a device called the cephaly device. The cephaly is an interesting device. It has both an acute and a preventive feature. So if you had an attack, you can put it on and wear it for a certain a little bit of an extended period of time, and it can try to help stop the attack. There's also that preventive feature, which I'll talk about shortly, but basically you wear it for 20 minutes every day to try to prevent an attack. So I would say those are our go-tos in terms of first-line treatments. Then in terms of other things, so some um, women may opt to take ibuprofen in the second trimester. You really don't want to take it in the first trimester because of concerns about miscarriage and you don't want to take it in the third trimester. But some OBGYNs are okay with it. I don't frequently have patients on this medication um, on ibuprofen, but it is an option to point out there to bring up to the OB. Um, and then there's the big question about triptans. So triptans are our migraine-specific medications um, for you know, when somebody has an attack to try to stop them. They're considered fairly safe. They're actually over-the-counter in other countries, including certain countries in Europe. Um, some people would even argue that it's you know, even potentially safer than over-the-counters here like ibuprofen. So you can take these medications. They're really the, one of the first line treatments for migraine if, if you're not pregnant. And so oftentimes patients will say, well, can I take this in pregnancy? And I would say in the past couple of years, there have been some registry studies published based out of Europe, meaning in Europe, they track all the patients who are pregnant and all the medications they're on, and they look at the outcomes of the um, of the fetuses and when they're babies to see if there are any adverse outcomes. And so based on these European registry studies, it seems that um, medications like sumatriptan are probably okay in pregnancy. Now, some of the other triptans, there are seven different ones. Some of the others haven't been used as much in Europe. And so that's why most of the data coming out is really more on sumatriptan than some of the others. Um, so based on this information, I do let patients sometimes take the triptan sparingly if absolutely necessary. We have to consider some of the risk benefits, right? Like if somebody has a bad migraine, it's not getting under control, they could have a lot of vomiting. Um, that's obviously not good necessarily for a fetus, the pain, the disability, you know, um, the cortisol, psychiatric issues, all of that wouldn't be good for mom and it could affect the fetus. So we need to take all of that into account. And migraine is the second most disabling condition um, per the World Health Organization in terms of disability adjusted life years, the second most disabling condition. That's crazy. That is crazy. People don't realize that. And so, you know, we can't deprive patients of taking medications to stop their attacks. If you think about it, it's the second most disabling condition. So we try these other treatments, right? But if necessary, um, I do let patients sometimes take triptans um, sparingly. But to your initial question about prevention, that's what we really need to focus on in patients who are contemplating pregnancy or trying to get pregnant or who are pregnant. And so this is something that I really focus on with patients 
trying hopefully before they get pregnant so that we can plan accordingly. Um, so a lot of the preventive medications that patients take for migraine are not okay in pregnancy. And so we do have to make sure they're off of them before they get pregnant. And, you know, a lot of women actually get pregnant, um, you know, unknowingly, accidentally, whatever. And so that's another reason we have to have conversations with women at each, you know, when we see them um, to, to talk about birth control and, and contraception, just because, um, if they're not using it, then we have to basically assume when we're choosing medications that there's the potential for pregnancy. And some of these medications can um, have what we call teratogenic effects, meaning can adversely affect the fetus. So this is a very important topic. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so we have to A, review the medication that a woman is on for prevention. So for example, topiramate, running Topamax would not be okay. Um, the calcitonin gene-related peptide antagonists, these medications that came out a couple of years ago, the recommendation is actually to be off of them for six months since the last injection before getting pregnant. So that's why it's so important to plan some of these things, you know, in advance to make sure you're not going to be on medications when you get pregnant that could adversely affect the fetus. Um, and then there are other ones too, right? There are certain blood pressure medicines like candesertin you wouldn't want to be on or valproic acid. There's just numerous migraine preventive medications that, that could cause a problem. But there are preventive treatments for patients with migraine that can be effective. Um, so a lot of my research actually focuses on behavioral therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, relaxation, those all have top evidence base for migraine prevention can be just as effective actually as medications. So in the ideal world, I would have patients go and you know do these treatments, learn the skills before they get pregnant so then they can utilize them during pregnancy. So for example, the studies were say eight to 12 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy or biofeedback by session six or so you should start to see improvement. So that's why I'm saying it's in the ideal world, you would start this beforehand so you'd have the first treatment would be um, first recommendation, which is safe, has long-term benefits, would be the behavioral therapist. Second, I mentioned that device earlier, the Cephaly, right? So you wear it for 20 minutes a day. That can be effective. The studies done showed that in patients who had seven headache days a month, it went down to five. So it's not, you know, none, there's no cure for migraine, right? Um, we look for, generally speaking, we were looking for 50% reduction in headache days. But the thing is, it's safe in pregnancy, right? It can be effective in some patients. So I tell patients they might as well try it. Um, and then we can also talk about some of the, the medications, right? So there are two medications that we sometimes allow in pregnancy, um, but it's usually a conversation that I like the patient to have with the OBGYN. And those would be amitriptyline and propanolol. Now, both of those medications um, can have various side effects and can also affect the fetus potentially in different ways. Um, and so the OB might want to, um, you know, follow the more closely to make sure the fetus is doing okay if on those medications. But in some patients, they do need medication. Like I mentioned, right? Like migraine is the second most disabling condition. That's crazy. We can't deprive women of these, you know, of, of any treatment. So, um, so if we do need to have medications, there are some medications. 
There are also nerve blocks. So those are procedures that can be done, which can also be safe um, and effective. Those are injections of lidocaine um, into the back of the head, say, in the occipital area. And that can be done if somebody has, um, for example, status micronosis. So if they're having pain for 72 or more hours, they could come in, get these nerve blocks to try to numb the area. Kind of like I tell my patients, like resetting the car engine, trying to you know stop the this pain pathway from going on and on. So that's another treatment option. And then I mentioned before the IV treatments, right? So for example, if it's really bad, we may need patients to go to an infusion center, urgent care center, if necessary, the emergency department, in which case, you know, they might be able to therefore get um, the IV metoclopramide. And also they might be able to get IV acetaminophen. And IV acetaminophen actually can work quite well for migraine. It works better than the oral form. So I don't think a lot of people know that, and a lot of people don't even realize there is an IV form of acetaminophen. It's it's hard to get, but it's not impossible. Yeah. We actually use it for post-operative pain control all the time in the hospital, and it is definitely more effective than the oral form. So yeah, that's absolutely a great option. I want to kind of go back to the injectables that you mentioned, because you were talking about uh, nerve blocks and Another another thing that normally is injected for chronic migraines is Botox. Now, obviously, Botox is different from numbing medication, but and just for our audience, um, Botox is botulinum toxin, which is an FDA approved injectable that's injected with needles into a whole variety of spots in the head and neck, typically every three months for patients who have 15 or more headache days per month, basically to decrease the headache days let's say someone has been either, you know, undergoing this treatment and then finds out they're pregnant. Is this something that's safe to continue? And, or let's say they have already had it and find out that they're pregnant. Like what, what would be potential effects of this? Yeah. So good question. So the anabactylinum toxin lasts in the body for about two and a half to three months. And a lot of patients think that, um, you know, it's an injectable, there aren't systemic effects and so forth. But in fact, there are systemic effects. It's not um, just localized to the muscles in which you inject it. Um, So we, generally speaking, the consensus is that we do not want patients who are pregnant to be on the onobotulinum toxin. So we would want them to wait the three months for once it wears off. Um, There are some headache specialists in the country who sometimes um, undergo a pretty detailed consent procedure, informed consent procedure with pregnant patients and have administered it. But I would say the overwhelming majority would recommend against it. And that's because onobotulinum toxin is a toxin. I said there's systemic effects. Um, And it's kind of similar to the whole thing about how babies shouldn't have honey because of the concern for onobotulinum toxin. So um, that's why, you know, we're concerned about it. And we generally want patients off of it. Gotcha. So I'm going to switch gears for a second. Let's talk about coffee. Let's talk about caffeine. So I have actually actually several questions regarding caffeine because this is something that there's, I feel like there's so many myths surrounding caffeine in general, in terms of what pregnant women can consume, whether it's safe in general to drink coffee. And then, you know, caffeine is often used as a headache medication. Um, Is that something that women can continue doing why, when they're pregnant and, and what sort of limitations might there be in terms of consuming caffeine uh, with migraine prevention or migraine prevention and treatment? Yeah, funny that you say that. 
So, so many patients out there wind up not even realizing that they have migraine. Um, they wind up just using caffeine as a self-treatment. Um, they're like, oh, in the morning I get a headache if I don't get my caffeine fixed. And interestingly, they have migraine and don't even realize it um, because they just self-treat with caffeine. But we actually prefer that patients don't use much caffeine because what happens is, is the brain basically is like, oh, wait, where's my caffeine? And then you can get a rebound headache. And so headache specialists really don't like caffeine, don't like the over-the-counter medications or prescription medications with the caffeine because of the concern for medication overuse headaches. So um, we usually say in, in a non-pregnant patient to not have more than two cups of caffeine a day maximum, and it should obviously be in the morning so it doesn't affect sleep. So um, in terms of the pregnant woman recommendation, we would just stick to the, um, you know, the, the regular recommendation of no more than 200 milligrams of caffeine a day at maximum. And that really wouldn't even be the treatment of choice for patients with migraine. Gotcha. You know, it's funny because I feel like whenever we talk about um, all of these various medications, like all, all of the basically um, uh, medication or injectable type of treatments, things like caffeine, Botox, all the various medications that you mentioned, I find it so interesting because I feel like a lot of times as a pain physician, um, whenever I have a pregnant patient, I'm kind of saying sort of, I keep repeating sort of, well, it's risk benefit. We don't really know overall, like we, you know, there are some things where obviously we've seen detrimental things happen. So like, that's a definite no during pregnancy, but for most medications, it feels like, well, we don't really know as much because we haven't seen any major effects, but we're not totally sure because no one obviously wants to test on pregnant women. And that ends up sort of becoming a limitation, at least for me as a pain physician, in terms of like what's okay during pregnancy and what's not. Do you kind of find the same with medications for migraines? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think what makes it even more challenging is that so many of the, of the medications we use for migraine are in a much lower dose than if they were used for other indications, right? So sometimes we use medications that were initially developed for depression and uh, say 150 milligrams of depression, and I might start patients at five and go up to no more than 50, right? Or an anti-seizure medicine where patients could be taking like 300 milligrams and I'm not going up to more than 100, right? So right. it's really hard because we don't really know the issues when it's these low doses of the medications. And it's similar even in non-pregnant patients. I tell patients, you know, don't panic when you see the bottle and you see all the side effects. Like these are the side effects at the doses we're using, right? Because otherwise you see this bottle and you're like, oh my God, I don't want to take it. Mm -hmm. um, but I have to say, well, these were doses at say 150 milligrams and it was a great antidepressant, but it wasn't well tolerated, which is why it's not used anymore. Right. But at this low dose, you'll get, you know, it's, it's we don't have to worry about all that. So um, it's even harder in, in pregnancy because there aren't studies looking at dose dependent effects, right? If we're lucky, there are studies, you know, post-marketing studies of, of basically, you know, of the medication and, and the outcomes, but we don't know the doses. And that's, a, that's a huge missing part of the information that we need. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it's, you know, it, it always obviously comes down to risk benefit, but it's true. Cause even when I prescribe pain medications, um, and patients have concerns regarding, you know, all the huge host of side effects that could and detrimental effects that could generally happen from it. I basically find myself saying the same thing. I'm like, well, yes, but that's about 
at a 10 times higher dose than what I'm prescribing. So you should not have these things, but if you do let me know, but like, you really shouldn't be having these effects. Like don't get scared just by, by Googling it. Right. Right. Dr. Google. It's like Dr. Google. Exactly. Um, what about some non-medication therapies? Now you mentioned nerve blocks, um, you mentioned cephaly, both of which are great options. What do you think about acupuncture? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, the data for acupuncture has actually gotten better and better over the years. So um, I would recommend if patients want to, you know, if they're pregnant, that they could certainly try acupuncture. Um, and even in, if they're not pregnant to, re- to try acupuncture. My personal preference and bias, I would say, is that I think the data is stronger for the behavioral therapies that I discussed before, the cognitive behavioral therapy, the biofeedback relaxation. So it's stronger than acupuncture. And also when you're engaging in those treatments, you're learning skills that you're going to have for life versus for acupuncture, you're kind of dependent on going for acupuncture and getting those sessions done to you. I feel like if you're going to put the time and money in that I'd rather my patients do the behavioral therapy, um, just because I think that's, you know, more bang for the buck in terms of the time and money that they're investing. But, and I think the data is a bit stronger, but if people want to do acupuncture and, um, and also if they're suffering and we're looking for treatment options, I think that's certainly um, a good one to pursue. Absolutely. Um, You know, I'm really glad that you mentioned the, all the preventative measures, particularly things like behavioral therapy, because I think in medicine, oftentimes what we don't address enough is prevention of disease rather than just treating it once it's already happened. So I think that's great even for non-pregnant patients. Um, But with that, you know, let's say that, you know, the patient's kind of been doing all of those things and they're doing, they're taking the medications you've recommended. They're still having terrible, a terrible migraine. At what point would you like bring a hot patient into the hospital to kind of treat the migraine? At what point would that become more of a concern to like actually bring them in? So A, if I'm not sure if it's migraine and we need to do additional testing to make sure that it's not something else, right? Like a tumor or aneurysm, something like that, because there are certainly um, uh, things in pregnancy that were like the pregnancy can actually increase risk of other kinds of neurologic conditions that can present as headaches. So um, that's obviously you know, not the majority of patients. So many people have migraine and so forth, but we need to be very careful about that. So um, if we're talking about, we know it's, we, we're pretty sure it's migraine. How do we treat the patient? Um, if they're, you know, really not responding to the treatments that I mentioned, um, if they are having intractable vomiting and, um, you know, just really need acute pain relief um, and those medications aren't working that we just discussed, then I bring them in for, say, the um, IV metoclopramide, the IV acetaminophen, some hydration, um, and go from there. Got it. This has been incredibly informative. I'm glad that you had mentioned how debilitating migraines are. I had no idea that it was the second most debilitating. Any sort of last words for our listeners, um, those who might already be pregnant or attempting to get pregnant and do suffer from migraines? Yeah, I think what's really hard, as I mentioned earlier, is um, migraine is so common. 18% of women have migraine. It's over 40 million Americans, but 18% of women. And everyone's migraine really differs. And so I think what can be incredibly challenging for women is, you know, a friend or a sister or an aunt talking about their experiences. 
um, and how they may not always work for you, right? Um, or they may be different or that people don't understand the pain and suffering you're going through because so much of the time it's like, oh, it's just a headache and it's used a little too colloquially, um, but it really is a neurologic condition. Um, you know, could even say it's a neurologic disease, um, which is very common. Uh, and the thing about that is that it's, you know, it does need treatment for a lot of patients um, and there's a lot of stigma attached to it. And so I think just understanding and realizing that people's experiences differ and um, getting treatment is, is really key. So um, the other thing to just note is if you are pregnant and you do have headaches, um, I would definitely emphasize the pregnant part when you're trying to make an appointment because oftentimes we try to prioritize um, women who are pregnant because it is a you know a special um, degree of care that you need um, for collaborations and investigations. So if you are pregnant and suffering from headache, then I think um, that part needs to be emphasized to the medical team. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. That was just incredibly informative. And then to our listeners, we really hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you all for tuning in. Um, And we'll see you at the next episode. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at thefemalepaindocs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.